Hello, everyone, and welcome back for episode 45 of the 45. Core, core Consult. Cole, please let me finish the whole <laughs> intro before you interrupt. Okay, jeez. Episode 45 of the podcast. It's almost halfway finally. to 100. That is almost halfway to 100 or halfway to 90, depending on how you want to look at it. Mm, 100 sounds better. It does sound better. Can't wait for episode 100. This is a good one. Another uh, guideline episode. Yes, finally. Harkens back to our first ever episode. It does. Blood pressure guidelines. Yep. But that's not what we're going to talk about today. No. <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, the new Lipin guidelines that came out in early November 2018. Just in case like you're watching this in the year 2025. Two weeks ago. Yeah. Our time. Our time. Not your time. <laughs> future person. But um, we're going to kind of go over uh, some of the... Differences, some of the the same, you know, things that were kept in from the old guidelines, but then a lot of the, I'm going to try to highlight the differences. We'll also compare like the ACE guidelines from last year mm -hmm. and uh, look and see how those kind of compare. But uh, yeah, we'll kind of go through that, look at some of the data. We won't go super in depth with the trials and things like that, but we'll mention some of them that were responsible. Well, so. we'll touch on them in later episodes, I'm sure. Yeah. With other things. At least. And these are the ACC AHA guidelines, which. The blood pressure guidelines were also ACCAHA. Yep. So there you go. That, gotta, that's what harkens back. Those guys are on fire. <laughs> <laughs> they know so what they're talking about. They should. It seems like it. But um, yeah, I mean, what do you want to start with? This, this is a lot of a lot of ground to cover. Yeah. Um, the long and the short of it is numbers are back. They are. They're back. Yeah. I felt like I spent three years trying to convince everybody that numbers didn't matter. Mm -hmm. And here we are. And it's really annoying too because when when I was in school. The numbers were there. They mm -hmm. were, their numbers were awesome. And then my that was what I learned in my like second year. Then like second semester, third year, mm -hmm. I was told to forget all that. Mm -hmm. And they literally retaught us the stuff that they had taught us, quote unquote, wrong. And then I came out of school, like you said, was trying to convince everybody we don't need to get lipids anymore. And if you're on a statin, you're good to go. Now I got to worry about numbers again. Yeah. It's unbelievable. That's why it's hard. Absolutes are, are tough. Yeah. You can you can say I this is the best of my knowledge based on these trials right now. But there can be more stuff that comes out that you're basically could be wrong. Yeah. And most likely I'm gonna contradict myself in a matter of six months. Like uh like fish oil. Mm-hmm. There's this there's a little teaser for later on. Hmm. Mm. The fish oil teaser. We'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah, we will. Fishy burps. Yes. Just that. <laughs> but um yeah, so Definitely, uh, the numbers definitely is the big, uh, the big switch, I guess. Which I shouldn't say the big switch because right. the uh, ACE guidelines went back to numbers again last year. But a lot of people were still kind of looking at the 2013 uh, ACC AHA mm -hmm. guidelines, kind of still as the gold standard. So um, now that they are also talking about numbers, that's when we're paying a little bit more attention. Yeah, and these are the update of those. And you know, I like that we have a number goal now because it, it's a little more tangible. It It's easier for us and really patients like it because, you know, patients do not get on board with not having a number goal at yeah. all. You know, what's my LDL? They want to know the numbers because there's only so much they can control. And if they can understand, oh, this is high, this is low, this is my goal, they can they can get on board with that. Right. Yeah, it's, it's hard. Even I would say even 
a lot of clinicians like goals too, because yeah. if you're just randomly giving a patient right. the, the the statin, it's it's hard. You're either like just kind of waiting around, hoping that they don't have an event, right. to know that it's working. So if the next time they show up for their appointment, you're like, yep, right, it's good. Failure with the statin is like failure as a clinician, basically. Yeah, so it's hard. So I think the numbers thing makes it a little bit easier. There is a little ambiguity as we go through that becomes pretty patient-specific when people have, they're like, you know, well, we'll talk about it, but they have certain risk factors, and it's not like you definitely have to have a statin, but you can take a lot of factors into account and decide. So that, that takes a look. They even reference in the guidelines that um, doctors generally won't have time to do this. It would probably have to be uh, lower levels or maybe even a lipid specialist to, to decide if somebody needs one when it's not like clear cut. Yes, you do. So mm-hmm. we'll talk about it. So um, I guess we'll start with, you know, the heart healthy lifestyle mm-hmm. because that's something that they obviously emphasize first off before they even talk about medications and they kind of encourage that across the board, like heart healthy lifestyle. Um, they want you to do that from the time you're young all the way up until, you know, the elderly patients and making sure that, um, you know, patients who are able to um, exercise and eat healthy and all that need, you know, do so to reduce your chance of having some sort of a cardiovascular event or your ASCVD risk um, across all ages. If you want something that's tried and true and proven to prevent uh, heart events, it's going to be exercise and diet. And so they go back and say, hey, if you're between 20 and 40, because a lot of these statin guidelines, it's like 45 and older. If you're between 20 and 40, there's, you know, your doctor actually needs to talk to you about, hey, we need to start now with your lifestyle changes, diet and exercise, because that is going to prevent issues in the future. So it's just more encouragement of preventative medicine. Generalized obesity, uh, as with that, lifestyle changes uh, can eliminate or prevent, you know, metabolic syndromes. um, And it's really a multidisciplinary effort when the patients are young. So it is important for them to have yearly checkups and uh, I'm due for mine. That's for sure. Yeah. That's been a little while. I remain in peak physical form. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm 30, so I'm sure I've got problems now too. Yeah, I went to the dermatologist. My my mom and my girlfriend got me to go to the dermatologist like a year ago. Oh, she was at the time. Now she's my wife. Does she know about that? (laughs) (laughs) Does your wife know about this girlfriend? Exactly. So my now wife, previous girlfriend... Uh, she got me to go to the dermatologist and they just started whacking stuff off me. Hmm. Oh yeah. Like ears and noses? Or? All sorts of things. Wow. Yeah. Just cut it off. So Long I was supposed to follow up in six months. That was a while ago. Yeah. So. I'm sure you're fine. Yeah. You look fine. Let's hope. <laughs> <laughs> I look okay. You look fine. Skin judge, cancer. Judging right. uh, by my extensive knowledge of dermatology. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, um, so I guess kind of jump into patients with clinical ASCVD risk. This mm-hmm. is kind of like the next big obvious group. Um, we want to start with at least a low density lipoprotein cholesterol um, or patients that we want to reduce that LDL. Um, so we can use a high intensity statin or if you know they can't tolerate that, whatever the maximum tolerated statin for that particular patient to bring down their ASCVD risk. Right. So even though they have ASCVD, just like before, which before if you had ASCVD, bang, you need a statin. Uh, But they say you want the maximally tolerated statin. And previously, that was kind of good enough. As long as they were on the highest Mm -hmm. dose statin they could tolerate, we're we're pretty much happy with that. But they want you to have a goal of at least a 50% reduction in LDL or more. 
um, which you know they may have referenced in the in the guidelines before, but now they emphasize that. Yeah. And what is clinical ASCVD? Uh, you know that term gets thrown around a lot, especially with the calculator. But that includes stroke, transient ischemic attacks (TIAs), um, any documented coronary artery disease with stable angina, ACS (so acute coronary syndrome), coronary or other arterial revascularization, and peripheral peripheral vascular disease with or without claudication, and also aortic aneurysm. So those are all clinical ASCVD, all would indicate you for an automatic high-intensity statin, which there's only two, right? Yep. So we got a torvastatin and then rosuvastatin would be our high-intensity, and it's the dose for a torva, it's going to be 40 and 80, and then for rosuva, 20 and 40. So it's not good enough just being on one of those two drugs. You have to actually work your way or start out at one of those doses. Bravastatin. Right. 80, it's not high intensity. Right. Simvastatin, 80, not recommended, not high intensity. Right. And like you said about the, they want to see a reduction of greater than 50%. That'll kind of come into play when we start looking at potential add-ons to statin therapy. So that's that's where the old guidelines weren't really all that worried about adding on non-statin agents, but now they play a little bit more of a role. Right. Um, so... We also have what they consider very high-risk ASCVD. Um, and in those patients, um, basically the LDL um, threshold is 70. Um, and then if you can't get there with the statin, that's when you want to start considering um, the addition of a non-statin agent to the statin therapy. Right. So if you notice with the clinical ASCVD, we mentioned the 50% reduction, but still it's kind of ambiguous. There's not a specific number. Here, if they have are very high risk for ASCVD, so what does that mean? So they're very high risk for a future uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease event would be a history of multiple major ASCVD events, right? So an ACS within 12 months, an MI, ischemic stroke, PAD, um, high risk conditions like age greater than 65 with heterozygous familial hypercholesterolemia, which we'll get into more with the PCSK9 inhibitors. Um, there are a few other things that you can look into, but all of these would cumulatively put you at very high risk for ASCVD and you would want to shoot for a goal of less than 70. So say they're on uh, Crestor 40 and their LDL went from 140 down to 90 or 85. You still want it lower in these patients below 70. Right. And then if a patient starts out, um, they, you know, they have dyslipidemia, their LDL is above 190 to start, even without calculating a 10-year ASCVD risk, um, we still would want to begin a high-intensity statin in these patients. And then depending on whether they would be considered very high risk, that's when we push it even lower, the goals to 70. Um, now, the difference between that and like the ACE guidelines that came out in 2017, um, they have what they consider very high risk as well, and they say less than 70 in those patients. However, they included a, a even further um, risk group, what they call extreme risk. I like that. They include the word extreme in their guidelines. I mean, yeah, it makes it extreme. It's super extreme. But, um, you know, they go through um, basically it's person with progressive ASCVD, um, unstable angina, and patients are still having these um, symptoms like the like angina, 
or progression of cardiovascular disease, even though their LDL is less than 70, um, in those particular patients, they want the LDL less than 55 for the ACE guidelines. Mm. Um, the new 2018 ACC AHA don't really have that risk category. Um, and so they, they don't really address going that low, but know that if you hear somebody talking about that, there is a guideline that does support that. So, And a lot of the new conversation with these number goals has to do with the PCSK9's outcome trials, basically demonstrating lower is better. And, it, and it's generally safe to have really low levels of LDL. We're not really seeing what some of the concerns might have been, like dementia, um, or brain-related diseases from having really low LDL. So mm-hmm. at this point, there's nothing demonstrating whether uh, more safety and uh, trials come out over time. The PCSK9s are still pretty new. Um, their post-three-year safety data really isn't clear at this point. They've been referenced that in the guidelines. So who knows what's going to come out. But for now, there's really no reason for us not to um, shoot for extremely low LDL levels if you want. That's fine. If that if it gets down there, you don't have to like back off their statin or whatever right. as long as it's below the goal. And, and I've actually talked to people who are doing very well whose LDL is like 15. Yeah, yeah. So that, you can get pretty low. Yeah. Um, Let's go for single digits. Yeah, why not? Let's go bigger. I go want home. unrecognizable LDL <laughs> yeah. in my patients. Uh, I don't want to see an LDL. <laughs> don't want to see any of it <laughs> any of it i want only good cholesterol <laughs> get that bad cholesterol out of your face a lousy density lipoprotein that's how i remembered that it was the bad stuff in school lousy lousy yeah i would have never thought of something like that wasn't my idea not clever <laughs> <laughs> um you mentioned pcsk9s just in case we forget to kind of go back over it because we do that sometimes um All if, the you're, time. <laughs> if you're not familiar with the pcsk9s um they are what what that um protein is is basically pcsk9 is something that binds to your ldl receptors um on the hepatocyte surface and basically breaks them down so the more receptors that are available the more ldl they can take out of the blood and lower your ldl so if you have high levels of pcsk9 in this in the blood then you're obviously you're degrading all those receptors you're not able to remove as much ldl so when we give a pcsk9 inhibitor um, we're allowing those receptors to stay active and then absorb more of that ldl Um, they are injectables and uh, the two that we have available right now, the brand name, we have uh, Repatha and we have Prolulent. Um, they are definitely still very expensive, which oh, the, yeah. the guidelines mention. However, I just got an email today, actually, um, about Repatha going 60% lower in cost. Right. Did you see that? I think they. it was either mentioned in the guideline or in one of the um, commentaries on the guideline I saw. But yeah, so in response to the guidelines, because they knew they're going to be getting more business, they cut their prices. And I guess they figured, hey, you know, we're, we're, we, I think, do they still only have the FDA indication for the familial hypercholesterolemia? I think they might. Um, don't quote me on, check. don't quote me on that. But basically, because of these guidelines are going to get an expand, they have an expanded role, uh, and they're probably going to see more of it. So, yeah. So I, I wasn't sure which one it was. So I guess Repath is the one that cut their prices. So, yeah. That might be the one to look into if the insurance is uh, rejecting, which, now I would figure uh, they would probably be moving towards you know approving it in more cases than not. Um, so the the Repatha, if you the labeled indications, they do have 
um, familial, but they also have primary hyperlipidemia and also prevention of cardiovascular events in patients with established CVD. Gotcha. So, yeah. Good. Still good to, good to go. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that's PCSK9s. And the other agent that um, we've seen for a while is the uh, is Zetia, mm-hmm. Zetamide. So they, they do mention that and that if you need another non-statin therapy, um, especially in, you know, patients that like, like we said, you're, you're very high risk, um, consider adding a um, PCSK9 inhibitor or probably ideally adding a Zetamide. Mm-hmm. That's going to be a much cheaper option. It appears to be their go-to is, is yeah. Zetia probably only for price and, you know, uh, it's not injectable. It's not injectable. So patients are going to be much more apt to use it. Yeah. All right, so let's see what other groups. Um, so yeah, so I think you mentioned the greater than one ninety, but mm-hmm. yeah, if it remains above one hundred, that's when you would consider adding on Zetia, right? And then potentially PSSK nine. Um, so if you have a patient with diabetes, yes, um, they recommend if the patient is forty to seventy five years old, um, they do recommend uh, even if it's considered like primary prevention um they as long as the ldl is above 70 to to start they do recommend starting a moderate intensity statin um that data comes from there's there's several trials but the big one that i always think of is cards uh, where they used uh, a torvastatin 10 milligrams in patients with diabetes um and saw a good benefit with with that and so that's why they specifically mention the moderate intensity instead of high Mm -hmm. uh now in regards to like secondary prevention that's where we always jump to to high because we have data from like the tnt trial mm-hmm. where we compared a torva 10 to a torva 80 and we saw the the benefit right um with 80 over 10 with no additional adverse effects so um but primary prevention is a little bit more complicated so we don't have to always jump to high intensity just because it's someone with diabetes mm-hmm. which if price is all the same i i do like going with a lower dose of like crestor or atorvastatin uh, frequently, though, simvastatin is pretty cheap, so a lot of pay, uh, a lot of providers go with that. Yeah. All right. So, um, I, and I, and I think it's important to point out. So, without calculating an ASCVD, so like I said, it's it's which before I think in this situation you didn't have to anyway, but um, there were more situations in the old guideline where you did want to calculate an ASCVD to guide your therapy, and now they're. Um, disease states and comorbidities are really guiding it more and mm-hmm. guiding their goals more, it seems. And and if you're not familiar with calculating ASCVD risk, um, we started off originally um, with like Framingham risk assessment, and then we moved to the pool cohort um, from the 2013 guidelines um, that took a few more steps to kind of evaluate your 10-year risk of having some sort of a cardiovascular event. Um, and then in 2016, I believe, um, it kind of got reformulated a little bit to where they added aspirin therapy. And um, also, uh, if the patient was already on a statin or not. Um, and so that was the um, ASCVD risk plus calculator. And that's kind of the most recent update we have that I know of. Um, but that's, you can use it's a free app if you want to download it. But um, it's a way of calculating their 10-year risk. And it's, I like the app too, because you can show patients, Hey, if, you know, if you quit smoking, look how much your right. uh, risk goes down. Or if you take this baby aspirin, look how much your risk goes down. So there's a lot of um, good visual benefits yeah. for patients to kind of 
get them to see the importance of taking the med. You get it online too. I think though, MD Calc might have been the one. It, at one point, it didn't have the updated calculator, so just be careful. But yeah, it might now. That was like six months ago. I think if you Google ASCVD um, calculator plus, I think it it'll pop yeah. up on the App Store. Yeah. So just go right to the source. Might as well. All right. So. Um, we mentioned, you know, patients 40 to 75 that have diabetes. So if a patient does not have diabetes, you're going to need to assess. Um, and, and they also don't have like a history of right. cardiovascular so it's disease. Just and basically like an otherwise healthy 40 to 75 year old. Right. And then you add on the risk factors. So that's when we're using that risk um, assessment. That's where it gets a little vague. And then people actually have to make decisions now. Right. So if, if the person does not is 40 to 75, doesn't have diabetes, their LDL is above 70, um, and then you do your risk calculator and you find out that it's 7.5% or higher, then you should consider a moderate intensity statin as long as you have that discussion with the patient and, you know, it seems to be more benefit than risk um, for that particular patient, then that would be a good idea to go ahead and give uh, a moderate intensity statin a try. All right. What else? Yeah, so I agree. And I was reading a commentary that mentioned that primary care physician time constraints might necessitate the need for trained non-physician providers um, or referral to a lipid specialist. I don't know. If you got the AACVD calculator at your fingertips i mean yeah it doesn't seem like it's it's too much of a bother to make that decision on the fly but you know they are pressed for time seven minute visits yep yeah it, the, the calculator definitely helps but um for the pharmacist listening this definitely could be a uh potential uh pharmacist encounter in the future when mm-hmm. pharmacists are being incorporated into like primary care physician offices and things like that then you know, if the physician doesn't have time to sit down and go through um, all the pros and cons of a statin therapy with the patient, this might be a good uh, avenue for pharmacists to kind of help out, throwing that out there. Yeah. Um, also, in that same situation, if the statins are indicated, you generally want to reduce the LDL, shoot for a reduction of greater than at least 30%. But if the 10-year risk is greater than 20%, so if their ASCVD risk is greater than 20%, then you would shoot for... Um, more than a 50% reduction, kind of like we are in the previous recommendation. So if a moderate intensity statin doesn't cut it and get you to the 50 percentile, if that's where you want to be, you might consider increasing it. Right. If, you know, when we say moderate intensity, we have a lot of different options. We have mm-hmm. the two lower doses of Atorva and Restuva. We have Simvastatin, like you mentioned. We have Pravastatin. Um, we also have, like, Lovastatin, Fluvastatin, mm-hmm. um, Patavastatin. So we have a lot of different options. Um, there's a nice table in the guidelines that is carried over from the 2013 guidelines um, where they have high-intensity, moderate-intensity, and low-intensity. And uh, the... You're going to notice that some of the um, drugs are, are uh, bold and the other ones are just plain text. The bold uh, actual, the, the bold drugs that are the bold doses are the ones that actually have clinical trial data showing that they have a, a positive outcomes as far as cardiovascular events, mortality benefit, things like that. Um, the other ones have not been evaluated and um, shown to be 
more effective than something else. So, for instance, uh, a Torva 10 is bolded, but a Torva Stat 20 is not. Um, a Torva 10, we have the cards right. trial and some others. So that's where uh, that's why that one's bolded and 20 milligrams is not. And so there is a situation where you have that same 40 to 75-year-old patient, but regardless of LDL, if their 10-year risk is between 5% and 20%, uh, certain risk factors might favor the initiation of a statin. So this is another kind of thinker, but um, if they have a significant family history of premature ASCVD, um, persistent LDL levels greater than 160, so that would be a risk factor, but it doesn't have to be there. Metabolic syndrome, CKD, um, even history of preeclampsia or premature menopause, like if they have menopause at less than 40 years old or other chronic inflammatory disorders, some other things. Um, persistent elevated triglycerides, all these can be risk factors where you could say, oh, they're at you know a reasonable risk and I'm a little concerned because of these risk factors. You can still justify, you can pretty much justify a statin in almost anyone over 40 these days if mm-hmm. you really want to. So uh, your call. And when we were talking about the patients with um, high risk earlier, the reason we didn't mention any names is because these guidelines um, basically discuss if a patient is 75 years or older, then, you know, it's still okay to consider using even high intensity statin, um, in those patients if they have, um, ASCVD, like clinical ASCVD. So they're a high risk patient for having an event. Um, then it's okay to use a high intensity statin or at least a moderate intensity. And then, um, if the patient's already taking a high intensity, there's no reason to stop it. Um, if the patient has, that risk kind of going into their, you know, later years, regardless of age. You're right. Saying. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we, we have some, you know, we have limited data and yeah. patients that old, but for instance, like the prosper trial, mm-hmm. um, with Pravastatin, we did, uh, use in patients up to 82 years old. Mm-hmm. So we have some data, not very much, but, um, we don't have any data necessarily showing a, a true harm, in older patients, so and like I mentioned before, the the main concern is dementia, and so mm-hmm. in that trial, they did um, have the patients take MMSEs, many mental status exams, at the beginning of the trial and at the end of the trial, and there were not any significant differences between their scores after being elderly and being on a statin. Granted, that is you know a moderate intensity, but still, we don't have any evidence that uh, really low LDL is going to increase your risk for dementia. Right. And kind of looking at the add-on therapies, too, just to mention some trial names. We won't go through these, but if you want to do some more research on your own, um, we've got an email. Or Yeah, we got an email recently that said basically uh, make sure we mention some names so people can do further investigation. I thought that was I pretty like cool. I like it. it. means yeah. they're gung-ho for some learning. For some learning. <laughs> so um, the four-year trial is the one for Repatha, and then the um, Odyssey Outcomes trial mm-hmm. was the one for uh, Pryolent. So if you want to do further research, definitely look those up. And there's some good summaries you can find online. Um, the actual reduction in cardiovascular events it was statistically significant but the the debate was whether or not it was significant enough clinically to justify the cost so that's where the holdup is right now right uh, at least until repatha really does drop the price so which i don't know how cheap injectables are ever going to get 
but you know, eventually the price will come down. Yeah. There's another good one that came out actually the same day as the guidelines. That's the reduce it trial reduce dash it. And this is what I was referencing with the fishy burps before. But basically, they were looking at whether patients who are maxed out on a statin but still had elevated triglycerides could get benefit from fish oil. And not just any fish oil, but specifically Bicepa would be the brand name. But it's uh, Icosapent ethyl, which is a highly purified Icosapentanoic acid ethyl ester, which lowers triglycerides. Uh, so they looked at two grams twice a day, which is pretty standard dosing. The patients had to be maxed on a statin, and they had to have a triglyceride level between 135 and 500. And they had a composite endpoint of cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, coronary revascularization, and unstable angina. And they did meet the composite um, with, uh, with the treatment group compared to placebo. And the secondary outcomes, they did see... Um, actual lower rates of cardiovascular death with the um, Bicepa group. So that's pretty interesting because before they've looked at fish oil like a lot because people really want it to work because, you know, it's quote-unquote natural and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but they really didn't have great outcomes for it. But now they've got a good trial. I mean, this had, um, I don't know, a lot of patients, <laughs> 8,000, over 8,000 patients, um, and it had good outcomes. So they're... There seems to be a role there, and it, we would need more studies to see whether it's this specific type of fish oil or just lowering, keeping the triglycerides down in general can help prevent events. Because really, usually if it's below 500 and they're maxed on a statin, I'm kind of like, don't worry about it. Yeah. But this trial says different. And then, like you said, too, just to kind of emphasize, it was the um, Vesepi brand yes. fish oil that yeah. was actually the benefit. Because mm -hmm. there was another trial done fairly recently. Um, I'll have to find the name of it. But um, where they used just the regular omega-3, mm -hmm. like the one gram, right. um, they didn't show any benefit. So Vesepi, that, that's the particular brand that's that they the used. It's that, Exactly. That only was shown to be effective. Yep. So. Just want to emphasize that. Very interesting. That's hot off the presses as well. So you guys are, I mean, within a few weeks, yep. getting it, well, getting it all. Unless you're listening in the future still. Yeah. Well, shout out to the future. Then guy. you guys should have listened to our podcast way earlier. Yeah, it was wrong with you. But we like you guys too, so it's, it's good. <laughs> I'm on the fence about it. <laughs> uh, what else do we need to cover? Um, the um, the Zedia kind of guidelines comes from the Improve It trial. Um, where they looked at um, azetamide added to statin therapy after a acute coronary syndrome. Um, that was published in New England Journal of Medicine in 2015. And uh, so we don't have to go through that, but that's where the data comes from. That's where those recommendations come from. So if you're doing some reading on your own, definitely encourage you to go through the Improve It trial as well. And, uh, yeah, those are the non Stat they they also they'll they throw out like a little like two second blurb about um, phenofibrates and patients with really high triglycerides, um, but that's really the only time and we don't have any good like outcome data with phenofibrates um, and we really don't have any data with like gemfibrozol. Mm -hmm. um, if you are gonna add one of those phenofibrate, they do mention being safer than gemfibrozol as far as um, adding to the myalgias and mm -hmm. myopathies. Right. Um, one thing we didn't mention, I'm sure we've mentioned before, but if you have a patient who is complaining of myalgias, myopathies, whatever, um, with a statin that, um, would be considered lipophilic, mm -hmm. uh, or excuse me, hydrophilic, mm -hmm. um, 
versus yeah i said it right the first time lipophilic so like a torvastatin because mm-hmm. that's the one we always use uh, i feel like that gets used a lot more than rasuva at least in my ex- personal experience um a torva is considered a lipophilic statin and so it's going to have a much easier time kind of penetrating into the tissue and could have a higher risk of having um, those those muscle aches whereas rasuvastatin and pravastatin are both considered hydrophilic statins and so they won't get into the tissue quite as well and uh, we do there's a meta analysis that kind of looked at this and did see a uh, a less um, less risk of having myopathies with uh, Rasuva and Prava versus the other statins. Right. So, I think I think the major misconception is that the higher intensity, the higher risk of muscle pain. That's not how it works. It doesn't really make any sense physiologically. I see very frequently uh, if someone's having muscle pain, then the doctors will say, okay, well, you know, they get nervous about it, so they switch them to these really wimpy statins like Fluvastatin, Pituvastatin, mm. all this kind of stuff. Um, when if you're on Lipitor, switch to Rasuva, and it, it has been shown to have lower rates of Muscle pains, but you know, sometimes there are people who have low, um, low doses of Crestor and still are having muscle pains and stuff like that. We also don't have really any evidence for CoQ10, so I know a lot of people do like to do that as well. Um, I don't know if you think it's in the patient's head and that makes him feel better, maybe it's worth it. Uh, but I say anytime you can decrease a patient's pill burden because over the counters are still a pill burden, decrease cost. Uh, I think there was one trial, um, that showed like extremely limited benefit, but it was like 30 patients for like a month. And that was, that was the only time that it did. They've looked at it in a couple other trials and it hasn't shown any benefit. So at this point we don't have any, any good. And the idea is that statins deplete CoQ10, which they do they actually do. And so people relate this to the muscle pains, but there hasn't really been a strong correlation there. It makes sense, but it hasn't been borne out in the trials yet. Right. So I get asked about that a lot by patients. Yeah, that's definitely, uh, and it's expensive too. A lot of a lot of the uh, CoQ10 brands are kind of pricey. Mm -hmm. What about the CAC scores? Had you heard about this before these? I actually hadn't. No. Yeah. So I didn't know much about them either. So basically, they're um, uh, coronary artery calcium scores. So the, the guidelines talk about this a lot as a good secondary way to confirm like, okay, yeah, we probably do need to start the monostatin. Um, basically, it's a way to grade um, calcified plaques in the arteries and kind of see what kind of risk they're at. So it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily say you should do this first line to guide therapy, but if you're on the fence about starting somebody, um, if they have a CAC score greater than 100, ag, agatstatins. A Gatstons. I'm going with the Gatstons. Some unit of measurement, or they're greater than the 75th percentile, then you would say statin therapy is indicated unless otherwise deferred by the outcome of the risk assessment, basically. Um, so these screenings cost about $75, upwards of $350, depending on where you get it done. And they're basically never covered by insurance. Um, so I saw some commentaries on this, and a lot of clinicians were angry that these can be performed for less than the cost of an ECG, and the results are actually highly impactful because if you have these clear-cut scores, then you say, yeah, I want to go ahead and start a statin in this patient. Uh, then it makes no sense for third parties not to pay for this. So with these guidelines coming out, maybe it'll become more common, but at this point, it's, it's probably going to be out of the patient's pocket if you want to have this done. So I would probably reserve it for 
uh, a case where you really think it's warranted at this point. And um, the other thing that they mentioned is patients with CKD as well. Yeah. Um, they they talk about using a patient um, who has um, chronic kidney disease if they're 40 to 75 um, and their LDL is 70 up to 189 um, and they have a 10-year risk assessment of 7.5 or higher um, and the CKD is not being treated with dialysis. Um, so it's their kidneys still have some function to mm-hmm. them um, to consider initiating a moderate intensity statin worry um, um, a moderate intensity in combination with azinamide. Um, and now if the person is currently requiring dialysis, you should not start a statin. Yeah. Um, that comes from the, uh, was it four, 4D trial, I believe. Um, I think that's right. But it, where they looked at a tour of a 10 with, uh, inpatients being started on, um, patients who were on hemodialysis starting a tour of a statin and actually saw a harm with the Torva. So it's kind of interesting. Um, but yeah, so that's where those kind of come from. Um, uh, what else do we miss? Back to the, um, muscle pains. I forgot to mention that simvastatin is actually one of the highest risks for that. And it doesn't go any higher than a moderate intensity. So that just kind of speaks to the high versus moderate. It doesn't actually have anything to do with the muscle pains. And it's old news, but do not start a patient on uh, simvastatin 80 milligrams it's anymore. old news, but you still I, I don't Just see anybody case. really started on it, but you yeah. do see it continued still. They say you can continue it. Right. I would change them. Right. Hint, hint. Might as well. But um, you can technically continue them on simvastatin 80 if they've already been on it, um, but do not start any new patients on simvastatin 80 that they did a study called the SEARCH trial, and they found that um, you had increased harm with no additional benefit when you went from 40 to 80 of simvastatin. So cool. keep that in mind. And as far as follow-up, so you started somebody on a statin, they fit into one of these groups, which I'm telling you, between 40 and 75, you're hard-pressed not to find somebody who should be on a statin. Yeah. Uh, you want to follow up with them in about 4 to 12 weeks. So these things work pretty quick. I mean, you know, 1 to 3 months, you can go ahead and get a repeat LDL, see where they're doing, see if you want to increase. I mean, it's, you know, only a little bit longer than adjusting blood pressure medications at this point. Uh, then after you get them to where you want them, you can repeat every 3 to 12 months as needed or as you feel uh, is appropriate for them. Absolutely. Those are the new ACCHA cholesterol guidelines. In a nutshell. The new guideline that's important comes out. Count on us to podcast on it. Yeah, honestly, we're, if it wasn't for us, I don't know what people would I don't do. Think anybody would know about it, honestly. <laughs> it's true. I mean, we got C. diff, <laughs> we got cholesterol, we got blood pressure, we got diabetes, we got gout. Man. What don't we have? We got <laughs> A1C. Oh, I said diabetes, but A1C. Mm hmm. Bang. Tell you what, we deserve a plaque or a high five or something. Something. Come on, Steve. <laughs> Give me some skin. Yeah, there you go. All right, so um, make sure you check out the guidelines. They are available right now um, to download the PDF file. Um, and it's only like 65, 70 pages long for the abbreviated mm, one. It's a so. light read. Yeah, it's a light read. They do have a nice 10 bullet things you need to take away from this guideline that's pretty nice. But if you want to delve deeper into it, see where they get their data from, like some yeah. of the stuff we mentioned, highly recommended. Absolutely. Read through some of the trials, see where that that stuff comes from, and get your learn on. But, uh, yeah, anything else you want to add? That's all I got. All right. Um, so, yeah, that's it. And we'll, uh, we will cover some more of that, like 
take pieces of it here and there mm-hmm. and go a little bit deeper, um, you know, in the coming months. But we want to make sure we gave a real brief, basic overview, at least since it's fairly new. But uh, yeah, we appreciate, as always, everyone taking the time to listen to the podcast. Um, we we very much appreciate um, the support, and you know, we see some of it on social media and things like that, and, and we really appreciate it. Shout out to uh, Pharmacy Times for mentioning us. We oh, greatly yeah. appreciate that. That's that awesome. was pretty fantastic to <laughs> read on Twitter um, that we got mentioned in Pharmacy Times. So um, you know, thank you to them and. Um, if you guys have any questions, concerns, um, comments, whatever, send us an email. Uh, if you like the podcast, send us a rating. That would be awesome too. Oh yeah. And we will catch you guys next time. Thanks.